All right, I hope you guys are uh, excited to uh, completely tear apart this Pinterest verse of the joy of the Lord is your strength. I have learned so much more as I have dug deep uh, into what that very cliche verse actually means and the comfort that it ushers in. It's, it's good stuff. So as I look at chapter 7 and 8, I see that this is rebuilding from the inside out. That is, uh, I, I don't typically title these because uh, we're using somebody else's book and, and it's not necessary, but I was, I've really enjoyed these two weeks and, and that's kind of the theme that I've seen. So where we are as we jump into chapter seven, as you guys know, is that the wall is done. Okay, so the attention now needs to be fully focused on the faith of the people, the faith of the people of God. So Uh, What Nehemiah starts with right there at the beginning of chapter 7, he says, Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So Nehemiah now starts to assess the dangers for this people of God within the city of Jerusalem. So what he's explaining is that the city was big, but that not many people were living inside the walls. So the people who were there were pretty sparsely Uh, They were spread out, and that made them vulnerable. And so the first thing he does, the short-term goal here, was to make the city safe. The people were still living in the countryside. They were still farming in the land outside of the city. They They were country folk. I want you guys to actually picture some of this text as we go through it today. Picture what that city looked like. All the attention has been on the wall, um, and, and the homes are probably still rubble. Right? It looks somewhat like a ghetto. It's, it's rough. It's not like this prime piece of suburban land that you're like dying to build a house on. So Nehemiah is now saying, we need to make the city safe so that people will want to live here. He starts setting up new leadership and he secures the city. And this continues the theme of what we saw last week. What is the point of building a wall If the people within the city are not safe, specifically, we saw if they're not safe from each other, what's the point of building a wall? He kind of continues that theme and what he's focusing on this week. He's essentially saying there's no reason to build a wall ensuring safety from the outside if the people within are not of one heart and one mind. So where does he begin? How will he um, find a people fitting for the city of God? As he turns to populate it. Well, he starts with the list of returned exiles, as you guys saw. What he does is he goes back to the list of the men and the families who came with Ezra and Zerubbabel. These were the men that uh, it says in Ezra that their hearts had been stirred by God to return to the city. So you guys started, you know, a lot of your homework on this list of names on this, this long genealogy. Let's just start with nice confession. How many people just skipped right over it? Good job, honest people. Oh, look at all the names. Yes, this is, this is a free place. Let's confess, right? How many of us saw that? We're like, sweet, this will be a quick week of study. I don't even have to read chapter seven. See if you can speed read it. 
But you guys know that there's something there, right? We know that God's word is living and active. And so maybe today we can work together to find some gems within this list of names. Well, there's a couple things that I saw that I want to point out to you guys this morning. And maybe you already saw it. But uh, right there kind of at the beginning, starting in verse 7, what we read is that there were these 12 men, these 12 heads of families who came back with Ezra and Zerubbabel to, to renew God's city. This, I think, was like 15 years before Nehemiah comes back. Do you guys remember that from week one? We, we realized that part of why we could really uh, admire Nehemiah's faith is because he was actually following in the footsteps of some people who had already done this, and their mission failed. I mean, that's a whole nother beast to... to to conquer, right? That there have been people who have tried this and it didn't work. I mean, that's why he got the bad report from his brother. That's why he was so upset about it. Well, here we actually see these 12 men whose hearts had been stirred to return to the city of God. Don't we see, if we were to go backwards in our Bible, that there was 12 sons who started the people of God? And don't we look forward and see that Jesus had 12 disciples in the New Testament to start the New New Testament church? And maybe now you're even connecting. Wait, isn't there somewhere in Revelation that tells us that when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, there will be 12 elders who will rule there? And then we think, ah, I'm glad I read this list of names, right? Well, is there maybe even something else there? So if you were to look through these names, there would be a name that you would also find in Matthew chapter 1. That name is Zerubbabel. We see Zerubbabel's name both on this list of returned exiles and in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Why do we we care about that? I think if we take a moment here and take the time to look at who Zerubbabel was, we're going we're gonna to find a theme that's good for us to know as we look to study the book of the Bible as one book. Zerubbabel was in the line of David. Okay, so he was in a, a kingly line, and that's why we see him in Jesus' genealogy. So when we see Zerubbabel in the rest of the book of Nehemiah, we're thinking king. Okay, he wasn't actually the king, but he was kind of like the placeholder. He was like in line. Well, who else do we see this week? We actually see a little bit more of Ezra than of Nehemiah. Who was Ezra? A priest. Okay, so we have kings and we have priests. And if you were with us last semester, you know that when we talk about priests, we are usually going to start talking towards the end of the talk about how Jesus is our great high priest. And then there's Nehemiah, right? The star of the book. Nehemiah serves as a prophet of sorts. Have you guys ever heard of that theme of when we look in the Bible, we should be looking for prophet, priest, and king? We have all three of those right here in this week of study. Prophet, priest, and king are three words that communicate the person and work of Jesus Christ. Prophet, priest, and king are these awesome hints in the Old Testament that point us to the different ways that Jesus is our leader. He is the prophet. We see Nehemiah revealing God's will to the people. We see Ezra as the priest who is 
allowing communion between God and his people. We see how Jesus has done that. And then we see Zerubbabel as the king. We see Jesus as the king, especially when we look forward in Revelation. It's important to me that as we study God's word, that I am not just doing all this extra study, getting all this extra credit by using these extra resources so that I can just wow you guys with cool facts, right? Like that doesn't carry. You guys will forget it by like 2.30 this afternoon, right? And all that does is puff me up. But what if we all learn to study God's word even more, right? What if we all learn to fish rather than just getting a fish every Tuesday morning, right? That will sustain. That will allow all of us to be all the richer as we learn to study God's word. This is one of those things. I'm looking for the themes of prophet, priest, and king as they teach us about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, just like with all of scripture, we we talk about comprehension and interpretation, and then we talk application. And it may not be super obvious at first, but I think that there's even sweet application for us to take a moment at the end of this list of names and talk about. So I was on a Gospel Coalition website this week, and I saw this really cool chart, and I want to give you guys a moment to say, what does this theme of prophet, priest, king mean to me? Is there anything I can apply to it this week? And so I have this chart that I want to go through, and the reason why I think that this is timely is I kind of wonder if sometimes in these first couple weeks of study, if when whoever is up here is talking about, like, get on the wall, come on, like, live on mission, like, do your work. Don't come down, stay focused. You know, it's like this charge, this hoorah, get on the wall. I wonder if it's been a miss for some of you on some weeks. You know, maybe it's because life is just so routine and mundane and you are doing the same tedious things that you've been doing for decades. Or, or maybe you're just in this season where the work is just so arduous. It is just so heavy that to actually feel motivated or feel like it has any glorious purpose is a miss for you. Maybe you feel like your work is so unseen and unheard that you just inwardly close down when I say, get on the wall, you have a great work to do. So I wonder if we could take a moment and be a bit introspective. As I read, these little descriptions of prophet, priest, and king. Because as they describe who Jesus is throughout scripture, we also get this invitation to see how has God made me that I might lead and serve God's kingdom. Okay, so maybe you are a prophet. Maybe God has wired you to be more of a prophet. I'm gonna describe you if this is you. A prophet tends to be intellectual, and they bring God's truth to the people. They guard the doctrinal door. They focus on biblical accuracy. Here's the things that we love about you prophets in here. You have a high view of the Bible as the final authority. Uh, you love in-depth Bible study, and you are very disciplined. You can sometimes be a bit of a fundamentalist and bringing us back to our core truths. If you are a prophetess in here, we need you on the wall next to us. You have a very important role on our team. Maybe, though, you are more of a priest. So maybe you, rather than bringing God's truth to the people, tend to have opportunities to bring people to God's truth. 
Maybe you are in your sweet spot when you get to love on people. You see needs that the prophets and the kings don't see, and you meet those needs. And you are good at at perceiving the feelings and emotions of God's people, and you put those first. You meet those needs. The people around you feel loved and cared for. The people on the wall feel loved and cared for and seen by you. You are uh, good at creating an experience so that people can know their God. If you are a priest in this room, if God has put that in you as his image bearer, you have a big job and we need you, especially as bullheaded prophets. We need you, priest. Maybe you are a queen or a king, whatever. (laughs) Maybe how God uses you is that you bring God's rule to people. You are focused on details. You build strategies and systems in your kingdom work, in your work on the wall. You are often an administrator or a programmer. And why we love you, kings, is you get things done for the people of God and for the glory of God. Um, And you are a good communicator, and you can take complex strategies and bring it into a simple way that we can all work together on the wall. God has made us all different, and we're all called to the same big picture mission, right? Of anticipating God's redemption and restoration and living on mission in all the different ways that he's made us. So don't just skim over those lists of names, but look in here for the details that tie into the rest of the Bible. Let's continue to look for these truths as we see Zerubbabel and Ezra and, of course, Nehemiah for the rest of this book. So as we now turn to chapter 8, what we are going to see is that Nehemiah is going to take a little bit of a backseat and we're going to read a lot about Ezra. What we see, though, is that the the leadership here, um, they don't plan to populate the city of God with just a bunch of warm bodies, do they? Right? Nehemiah, Ezra, what they're saying is not just any people can inhabit this city, So we see them work and lead to that end. How to create a people for the city of God. That's what we're going to move towards now. Let's focus on that. How do they create a people for the city of God? What is the recipe for that? Well, for the the Jews to begin to understand God's design for them as the people of God, they must first seek God's word with expectancy. As chapter 8 opened, it said, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. This is an awesome scene where we see God's people with the initiative saying, Ezra, bring out God's word to us. Let's remember the context. Where were they last week? They were super divided, weren't they? They were enslaving one another. They were divisive. And here we see them coming as one people and saying, Ezra, bring us God's word. So where is this scene happening? It's not deep within the temple, is it? It's in the courtyard. It's out by the water gates. Why that matters is that Ezra is making God's word accessible to all of God's people that could understand. I mean, 
mean, otherwise, us women would not have been allowed within that part of the temple to hear God's word. And that's where it was normally kept. I want you guys to, again, picture yourself there in chapter 8. Picture that you are a Jewish woman. You have recently made amends with women who are maybe in a different socioeconomic class than you. You have now forgiven maybe some women who were putting heavy chains on you. And you come, and we all come together, and we're in the courtyard. And we're near the water gate, and we're listening to Ezra read. And maybe we don't understand Hebrew anymore because we grew up under Persian rule. Well, then maybe a Levite comes to us and translates for us or helps us understand God's word. And we're sitting there together, and the wall, the freshly restored wall, is behind us. Well, what are we listening to? We are listening to Ezra tell the stories of Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. For hours, we are sitting here, and our kids are quietly sitting at our ankles, and we're all listening to the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then a couple hours later, Ezra starts to tell the story of Exodus, and we get to rehear the story of Moses and Aaron and then Joshua and Caleb, and then later of the victories of David. What is happening in our hearts and in our minds at this time? We are just hearing on repeat the story of God, of his of his covenant faithfulness, of how he has kept his word over and over again. Here, in the, in the presence of this priest who has brought the law and made it accessible to us, we are being moved greatly. And so now we pause for a moment and we get to see on this side of the cross how very accessible the word became to us a people who were once kept far off. 1 John 1 1 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. See, Jesus would make the word all the more accessible. Right? He would totally dwarf Ezra. And his attempts to make the word accessible as Jesus actually became the word. And John uses like every sense, right? He he talks about the senses. These people saw Jesus. They touched him. They heard him. He made himself manifest. How very accessible the word would later become to God's people. So in addition to a foundation upon God's word, in addition to God's people needing to be expectant of God's word, the people, secondly, needed to become responsive to God's word. You guys read what their response was as they heard Ezra. They said, amen, amen, and they're lifting up their hands, and they're bowing their heads, and they're getting down and worshiping with their faces in the dirt. This is their response, but then the leadership, Ezra and the Levites, they come and they kind of direct them. And they say, let's, let's talk about what the appropriate response is here. It's kind of maternal language. What is the appropriate response, right? That's what they're saying now. And, and what they say is, the day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the word of the Lord. Then he said to them, go your way. 
eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the to our lord do not be grieved for the joy of the lord is your strength do not mourn or grieve was their first instruction dry up your tears people why what says because this day is holy to the lord you're saying this day is unique this day is set apart this day is unlike any other Because not only have you not been obeying God's word, you haven't even been hearing it. Today is a big deal. The joy of the Lord is your strength, he says. And we know this verse because we see it everywhere, right? It's on t-shirts, it's on mugs, it's all over social media. The joy of the Lord is your strength and it's always with this perfect like tone of pink and flowers. I mean, it's our Facebook picture right now even. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so we read that maybe in our quick morning devotional. We say, yep, okay, I can do this. I can get it. I can make it to lunch with some joy or at least something that looks like joy. But maybe there's even more for us to understand there. What is Ezra saying? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Well, when we study God's word in context, we're going to see verses like this get bulked up with what is actually happening here. What is Ezra Wanting them to understand. What he's, what he's saying is that there is this legitimate sense of failure that the people were probably feeling. Right? He's been telling them the story of God's faithfulness in light of the people's unfaithfulness. Right? He has been showing for hours how God has kept his word every time. And how the people have been fickle. How the people's love has been weak. The people are mourning and they're grieving largely because they feel paralyzed by regret and by shame. But remember, if you're picturing that you're you're the woman there and you're hearing these stories and you're starting to well up with emotion, you got to realize that you're going to look around you and you're going to see this wall right? You're going to see this evidence of God's grace to you. And you're looking around to your, to your family and, and your friends, and you're saying, how is it that we have been brought home? This is, this is not what we deserve. We deserve death and punishment. We deserve to stay in exile. And yet here we are. We are brought back We remain. We we have not been destroyed. But he has brought us home. (coughs) There is emotion that will be felt here, but the leaders want to tell them what is the most appropriate emotion. The appropriate emotion before grief, before mourning and fasting is joy. How is that? He's saying, yeah, you guys, we have all failed. But do you know what's bigger than our failure? God's goodness. God's inexhaustible grace for his people. And what we do when we first have joy and rejoice in our salvation is that we keep God as the center of the story. We don't hijack his story with our sense of failure. It doesn't say that 
Your joy is your strength. That's not what Ezra says to the people. Hey guys, your joy is your strength. No, he says his joy, the Lord's joy. In Micah 7.18, we read that the Lord delights to show mercy. If I'm that woman leaning against that wall of grace, I'm experiencing his mercy as I sit next to my people in my home. The the Lord delights to show mercy, and now that delight, that joy actually can become mine. Ezra doesn't say to him, to the people, um, your strength is your joy. How about that, women? Don't we get that mixed up? Your strength is your joy. If you, feel, if you feel strong in this season, you should have joy, right? We think of when our, when our happiness has been the steadiest, and it's when we feel capable, productive, like we're moving forward. Like we are women, hear us roar. We are high capacity. We can do anything. We can wear six different hats and look like we're not even trying the whole time. That is not what the people are being told. It's not that your strength is your joy. His joy is your strength. So it is a joy not fabricated from ourselves. It's not a joy that is fabricated by our current circumstances. And the good news is is that it's a joy that translates beyond a mood. It actually becomes more than a mood. It becomes strength. So what do we do with this? Well, number one, we make sure that what we're not hearing is this pressure to always be the happiest girl in the room, right? There is such a difference between the joy that actually comes from the Lord, that is his own joy that he shares with us, and just always having it together, always smiling, always being optimistic, right? That pressure that we put on ourselves, that house of cards that we're essentially building when we think that to be God's daughter, we have to be happy all the time. Right? That's not realistic. Very often it's not authentic. Some people it is. But we are being called to joy here. It is far richer, far deeper, and far longer lasting than just happiness. What else can we see for, for our lives? Well, I believe that we need to ask to hear God's word like the people of God. And we should crave it. I heard this from some people who have um, who put together a bunch of studies on the book of Nehemiah. We need to crave God's word more than we crave an experience and more than we crave the words of a famous author or blogger or podcaster. Right? The, the people of God were not coming to, the, to uh, the courtyard outside the water gate for an experience. They weren't coming because Ezra was such a great speaker. They were coming for the word of God. They didn't all gather to say, all right, we are followers of Nehemiah. We want to hear what the next exciting plan is now that the wall is done. They came for the word of God. To be the people of God, ladies, we need to gather around God's word. And then once we're there, our response to the word must be to not hijack God's story. See, even in something resembling humility, we need to be careful to keep God center stage. 
his story, whether you are in a season of life where you read it 15 minutes before bed or four hours in a courtyard somewhere, that story that we are reading, it tells first and foremost of God's goodness. His story from Genesis to Revelation is of his inexhaustible grace. So be careful to not jump to this paralyzing grief when you sense that you have fallen short. Yes, there is a time for us to feel conviction of the ways that we have been unfaithful, but first rejoice that he is faithful. And then what happens, as we see in this text? Then the joy of the Lord becomes our strength. And that strength allows us to obey and be the people of God. So he says, eat the fat, drink the wine, dry up your tears, pull yourself together. That's why we had donuts this morning. (laughs) Eat the fat, drink the wine, and share it with anyone else. Ladies, look around you. Who needs you to share some of that joy? Right? We We have seen in all of these chapters how very hard this has been. Right? These people are tired and exhausted and displaced. And there's a lot of change going on. Look around you. Who doesn't have some fat and some wine? And give them yours. Bring people in to feast on God's goodness with you. Pull somebody up who is hurting, who is tired. Rally around God's word. And great rejoicing will come. So then what did we read? Well, we watched as this acceptance of God's word translated to action in light of God's word. As the next morning, it's like a little men's Bible study. They come together to read God's word again. And here they discover the Feast of Booths, right? Or the, um, what was the other name for it? The Feast of Booths or, I'm blanking. Feast of Tabernacle, thank you. So they come here and, and they read, you guys did this in your homework, you saw that God had commanded God, his people to celebrate one week out of the year to go and to live in tents, to make some little huts and live and pretend that you're in the wilderness again. Well, why did he want them to do this? He wanted them to remember those days right after they were saved from Egypt. He wanted them to remember when they were nomads, when they were exiles, when they were sojourners, if you will. How cool that that God's people who have just been brought home, who could get started on building new homes, are first told to go live in tents. See, it's, it's almost like they were being told, hey, Jerusalem, the city of God, it's great, but it's not your final home. Isn't this hinting that there would be a more full realization of what home means in heaven? saying, yes, we have a wall now. We have a city. We have a people. But we are made for something far greater than this. This is not your home. At the heart level, people of God, you are to remain aliens and strangers. And so the people practiced the festival. There is so much that we can glean from these chapters. We could have done Nehemiah so much slower. I don't know if you guys feel that way, but there is just so much application here. Here's a couple of the things that I'm trying to focus on this week. What I see in these chapters, rejoicing came after obedience. 
So maybe what is true for us is that we cannot wait for the feel-good feeling to start obeying. If I wait for that feel-good feeling, I will never obey. How often do I hesitate to apply what God's word says because I'm just not feeling it? Because the sky is gray and it started slating again. There's no feel-good feeling there in the middle of March, right? Rejoicing came after obedience. So maybe what is true is that the more that we submit to the word of God, we gather and we submit to it, the more rejoicing we welcome. The pattern is we hear God's word, and then there's that joy, and then that leads us to obey more, which leaves us with compounded rejoicing. Maybe, like the the people of God, we need to discover something within God's word that we once practiced, but we've forgotten about it. What is your feast of booths? What is the thing that God has called you to, but slowly over time, you have just stopped that discipline or that practice? Is there something in our lives that we need to mix up this week so that we remember that there is a far greater home awaiting for us? What are ways that we this week need to rejoice that God restores and redeems his people, but also live like nomads and long for heaven because of it? So we need to read God's word. You guys know that. That's why you're at Bible study. I don't need to preach to the choir. And there are days, in fact, every day, we can go to God's word to find joy and strength. You know, we need to go to God's word. When we feel depressed, we go there for comfort. When we feel lonely, we go there to be reminded of our communion. When we feel guilty, we go there to experience grace. We can go to God's word to tend to our feelings. That is not bad. But then once we are there, we must continue in God's word so that it might show us how to live, that it might bring attention to the parts of being God's people that we have forgotten or that we have gotten lazy with. Who knows what rejoicing will await us there. So as we close, let's turn our eyes to what is the sweet gospel hope in Nehemiah 7, 8. I'm sorry, what chapters are we even studying? (laughs) 7 and (laughs) 8. I didn't get my donut in. I can't think straight. Where is our hope in this text, guys? Going back to the opening verses, we saw Ezra, the priest, leave the temple and come to the people. We saw Ezra stand by the water gate and refresh the people of God with the word of God. We saw him make the word accessible. Hundreds of years later, after Ezra was long gone, Jesus, the great high priest, came. And he actually would become the temple, wouldn't he? He would become the very place of communion with God. He would be the very embodiment of God's glory, of his Shekinah glory. And he came that he might build a people fitting for the city of God. 
See, Jesus, our high priest, was actually the very word of God. So picture this with me. This picture described in John chapter 7 in the city of Jerusalem during, actually, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus, the word of God, stood up and said, not next to the water gate that we read, but he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So let's be women who do that, who come to him, the word of life, and drink deeply of his goodness and rejoice that our names are in the book of life that our names are on this long list somewhere that allows us to someday come fully home. And let's expect to see his faithfulness in his word. Let's accept the good news he has for us and let's take action. Let's pray.